Uh, we've been in a series uh, going through the book of Hebrews, and I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, pull those out. We're going to be turning to the book of Hebrews today. We're going to be in chapters 8 and chapters 9. And so uh, if, you'll, if you'll pull that out, if you have a device, you can be reading along with us. Uh, I believe that today's message has implications for all of us. Um, it is a message that I know I need to, to receive on a, on a regular basis, and I hope that it's a message that you will find uh, the same. In the first seven chapters, really, uh, the preacher or the author, we, we call him the preacher because uh, this, this kind of functions like a sermon. This book functions kind of like a sermon. And so you'll hear me refer to the author as a preacher sometimes just, just because I believe that that's, that's what's going on here in the text. Um, but, but he says that Jesus is better than than all these things, that, that Jesus is the better deliverer. So in the first seven chapters, we're going we're gonna to read things, and we've already studied these things, that, that, that Jesus is better than the angels, that he's better than Moses, that he's better than the priests, that he's uh, resembling this king priest Melchizedek. Um, and, 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 and if all of that goes way over your head, let me, let me just say you're in good company, because uh, today's message, we're going we're to drill down a little further, that if Jesus is the true king, that the one who, who rules with perfect justice. But Jesus is also the true priest, one that sympathizes with our weaknesses and intercedes on our behalf. We ask the question, how can he be both king and priest? How can he do both those things at the same time? How can God be just and yet be love and close to us? How can God be just to those of us who have committed so many injustices in our lives? And the Hebrew writer will go on to say one way, the cross of Christ. The cross where the absolute justice of God met the fullness of God's mercy. So that gets us to Hebrews chapter 8, if you'll read along with me in the text, starting in verse 1. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. I love somebody who just gets to the point. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. So why, why does this message matter to somebody who is graduating high school in a few weeks? Why does this message matter to a senior adult? Why does this message matter to a single adult? Why does this message matter to, to married couples or our students, college students or high school students or grade school students? Why does this message matter? Because regardless of the season of life you're in, you have an opportunity to be faithful to the one who has been faithful to you. His name is Jesus. And so you have an opportunity to get back on the path or to stay on the path and not to drift. So catch this, the preacher who is, is preaching or writing this, this book, this sermon, this letter, uh, he's moving his hearers from this disobedience that's described in chapters three and four to this faithful endurance that's gonna be described in chapter 11. This, this is the movement that's taking place. And it's a movement that we are all invited into. This, this movement from disobedience to this faithful endurance. Uh, I love how Howard Thurman says it. Howard Thurman uh, was a mentor to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. If there was no Howard Thurman, there, there would be no Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in terms of what happened during the civil rights movement. And, and there's this really 
good little meditation book called Meditations of the Heart by Howard Thurman. And I've been reading that lately. Here's, here's what he says. He says, we've exhausted our store of endurance. When we've exhausted that store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. Isn't that good? This, this is this faithful endurance, I believe, that the, the Hebrew writer is moving us to. And this is the path for us all. So remember in this letter or remember in this sermon, remember the two goals that the, the writer is trying to accomplish. So five warnings. We've already been through a few of the warnings that, that have been issued. Uh, five warnings in this whole letter. But there's two main goals. Goal number one for the writer is that Jesus is worth, this is what he's trying to get across, that Jesus is worthy of our trust. That Jesus is better than, superior to anything else. And so he makes these, these four comparisons that, that don't necessarily resonate with us today, but I told you that in the beginning that this was a paradigm that I believe is, is something that speaks to us today in, in our context as well. Because the writer's going to say, yes, Jesus is better than, he's superior to, to angels, to, to Moses. Uh, he's, he's better than the priest. And, and that word better is found more in Hebrews than the whole New Testament combined. We see this over and over again. What we have to be reminded of is what is it that we need to, to remember that Jesus is greater than in our own lives. Jesus is greater than your parents. Jesus is greater than your preacher. Jesus is greater than your church. Jesus is greater than your elders. Jesus is greater than your wealth. Jesus is greater. And, and all of these things that we're bombarded with in, in our own lives, we have to remind ourselves of this message today. The goal number two is this, is that challenge, uh, the, the, the writer's gonna challenge the reader to remain faithful to Jesus. Don't drift. Don't drift. We've talked about this a lot over the past several weeks. So for the remainder of chapter eight, he talks about this better covenant Look at the screen, Hebrews 8, verse 6. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. So the, the Hebrew word for this, this word covenant, just it literally means to bind. So when we say covenant, we're, we're really talking about uh, this relationship between two parties. Uh, so this is, this is not some, some contract, you know, in, in, the, in the marketplace today, if you're buying or selling their home, uh, a lot of times you won't even see the, the person that you're buying the home from until you go to closing. I mean, there's, there's no relationship. I mean, you're basically, here's a piece of paper. Do you agree to this? No, here's a piece of paper. Do you agree to this? And you go back and you go for it and you go back and you, and there's, there's no, it's not, it's not this relationship. It's this contractual kind of agreement that you're trying to develop and make. That's not what a covenant is. A covenant is, is a relational word to bind together. And so it could be this bilateral agreement in which two parties made the initiative and agreed on the terms, or it could be this unilateral agreement in which one party declared the terms. It could be this pact between friends. It could be this marriage commitment. It could be this political treaty. It could be uh, this business agreement. But relationship is a big part of covenant. God's covenant with Israel was an act of unearned grace for the benefit and blessing of the people. And God's motive was what? God's motive hinged on this one word, 
chesed. You'll see it on the screen. It just means loving kindness, steadfast love, mercy, covenant faithfulness. And we see this covenant terminology over and over again in the scriptures. Genesis chapter 6, I will establish my covenant with you. Genesis 17, I will make my covenant between me and you. Exodus 6, I have remembered my covenant. Deuteronomy 4, he declared to you his covenant. Against this backdrop, this is what the author of Hebrews is going to use to discuss the new covenant first announced by Jeremiah. Now, we've said in this whole letter, there's, there's more Old Testament quotes than in, in any other letter in the, in the New Testament. Some 30-something quotes from the Old Testament. This is the longest one from Jeremiah 31. This is the longest quote that the writer is going to use from Jeremiah 31. And how does it begin? Hebrews 8.8, 8, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. I want us to understand the, the relational aspect, the relational equity that is found in this word covenant. I mean, we, we can begin to understand this in some of our relationships. I'm, I'm covenanting with you. I, I covenant with my, my wife. I don't send her a piece of paper that says, hey, if you'll do these things and you'll sign right here, that'd be great. We'll have a great relationship. And then she sends it back. No, I'm not going to do that, but you can do this. You know what I mean? So that whole back and forth thing, you know, and then I'll, I'll sign it every time, right? So, I mean, this is, this is not what covenant means. This is not what a covenant relationship means. It's not contractual. It's covenantal. And this new covenant was this drastic revision of the old one, making the old one null and void. Verse 13, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. So this takes us into chapter 9. This is what moves us into chapter 9 where we will spend the remainder of our time. And, and so why is this new covenant, this new testament such a big deal for us today? Because the new covenant speaks to God's master plan for how the world would be made right. This is how the world is moving to being made right. And what the preacher and writer is about to address is really one of the fundamental problems of human beings, the guilty conscience. This is something that all of us have dealt with or will deal with in the course of our life. So I wanna introduce this today and then next week we're gonna take a little more of a deeper dive into this. But in chapter nine, the writer begins by taking the reader or listener on a guided tour of the tabernacle in the, of the Old Testament, that portable tent that served as a place of worship. And so he could go on and on, and this is what the, the writer's gonna confess, this is what the preacher's gonna confess, is that I, you know, I could go on and on about these things. I could go on and on about the lampstands or the tables or the, or the oil or the, the curtains and the like, but the preacher's main emphasis is on action and meaning, not fixtures and architecture. So he wants to contrast what's happened or what failed to happen in the old tabernacle with what happens through the ministry of Jesus. This is what the preacher's doing. Hebrews chapter nine, verse eight. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way to the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. So in the tabernacle, you had different sections. One of the sections was the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest could go in there. 
Uh, there's some old rabbinic writings where the, the, the high priest would wear these bells and they would tie a rope to his foot so, because if he went in there and, and, he, and he died, they would be able to pull him out with the rope uh, so that they weren't uh, subject to going in. You know, now, is that true? I don't know. That's, that's probably a legend, but, but that it gets, speaks to the significance of, of this, this idea of this holy of holy. So this is, this is the context in which the Hebrew writer is writing. Verse 9, this is the illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the what? Not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. So even if you don't believe in God, if, if you're joining us online, or you're, if, even if you don't believe in God, your soul's conscience has this sense of guilt. Uh, the playwright Arthur Miller who wrote The Death of a Salesman. After he stopped believing in God, he switched out needing God's approval to ease his guilt for needing the approval of others. This is what he said, you know, you know I, I stopped believing in God, but what I found was that instead of seeking God's approval in my life, I just switched that to needing the approval of other people. So I, it wasn't like I got rid of that, I just moved it from God to other people. And it's, here we have the, the play, Death of a Salesman. He said, I stopped believing in God, but that didn't stop my guilt. I just passed it on to others. Forbes magazine wrote an article, Six Signs That You're Suffering From Guilt and Probably Don't Even Know It. First sign is that close relationships don't seem to last. People can't get close to you because if they do, you're afraid your woundedness may be revealed. The second one is that you're chronically tired and distracted because you constantly carry the burden of guilt and it occupies the real estate in your mind frequently. Three, you critique others and you put them down to, to make yourself feel better. Four, you respond poorly to other people's criticism of you. Instead of trying to find the grain of truth that may be there, you, you blow up in dramatic fa fashion. Number five, you're, you're paranoid about what others think about you because you project onto them the bad things that you think about yourself. And then number six, you sabotage your own efforts because you feel like you don't deserve to succeed. You don't deserve to be in a healthy relationship. And so you sabotage your own efforts. Can anybody resonate with these six signs that you may be experiencing guilt? If I'm honest, uh, some of these hit home for me. Things that I have dealt with in my, in my past. And, and why? Because that covert guilt, you have overt guilt and covert guilt, that covert guilt in your life, that angst has a tendency to go back to a vertical disruption. It's a, it's a vertical dysfunction in our lives. And the Hebrew writer says all that, the tabernacle, the high priest going into the Holy of Holies, the once a day or once a year day of atonement, where, where the sins of the people were placed on a goat and the scapegoat was sent out of the camp, all that was not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. And then we get to verse 11, Hebrews 9. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. It's not made with human hands. That is to say, it's not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus attaining eternal redemption. 
The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse your consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? This is getting to the heart of this sermon. This is getting to the heart of this letter. I don't miss this. This is why I've encouraged you to, to, to keep reading this letter as a whole in, in context. Like keep it all in perspective. But this, this is getting to the heart of what the preacher is saying. If you studied the last week of Jesus' life on earth before his crucifixion, it's as if he's staging his own day of atonement. He's staging his own day of at one If you just break that word down, you'll, you'll understand what it means. Atonement, at one it's, it's when there's this, this oneness that is, is established and created. And the night before Jesus' sacrifice, he stayed up all night praying. And he wasn't clothed in rich garments. I can assure you he wasn't wearing this suit that my wife laid out for me last night. He wasn't clothed in, in rich garments. He didn't walk in all fancy. He was stripped of the only piece of clothing that he had. He wasn't cheered along. Jesus, go ahead, you can do this. He was abandoned by nearly everyone he loved. The high priest wore the 12 tribes of Israel on his chest close to his heart. Jesus wore us on his chest and heart. He had you in mind. He had me in mind. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, the Hebrew writer will go on to say in a few chapters. And he didn't just offer the sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. He was the lampstand that brought the light of God to us. John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He was the table of showbread. John 6, 35. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And one of my favorite descriptions of the resurrection story is in John chapter 20, verse 12. When Mary looked in the tomb, she saw two angels seated where Jesus' body had been. Have you ever catch this part? Have you, have you ever looked at this next part? One at the head and one at the foot. What's that a picture of? The Ark of the Covenant. The ultimate point was never the Ark of the Covenant. The point would be that the resurrected body of Christ, heaven's mercy seat, would now have the angels at the head and the foot. Do we have a picture of that on the screen? This was the Ark of the Covenant. I want you to think about this resurrection scene that Mary's seen, the empty tomb of Jesus angel at the head and the foot. Jesus has taken away your sins. He is the scapegoat. And so we place our trust and faith in him. We are buried and raised with him 
in the waters of baptism. But wait, there's even more. The blood of Christ does something with our guilt that the old covenant and all religions could never do. Look at verse 14. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, how much more then will that cleanse your guilty consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? So here's what I want to do just as we close this message. I want to give us three things that the blood of Jesus does with our guilt. And again, this is a message that I've needed this week, and I've needed to be reminded of, and my prayer is that it blesses you as well. Number one is that we go from guilt to purity. Uh, The old sacrifices dealt with outer purity. Jesus' sacrifice deals with the inner person, the conscience. And so one of the final words that Jesus said on the cross was to tell us die. It is paid in full. And so they would even find receipts during those days that had that word to tell us die at the bottom. Debt paid in full. And this was one of the final words that Jesus utters on the cross. This is paid in full. Now is it possible to fully articulate exactly how this works, how the blood of Christ can cleanse our conscience. I don't think it is. Maybe you believe that you've been forgiven, but you still have shame. Maybe you find it hard to forgive yourself. Theologian J.I. Packer says that how it was possible for him, Jesus, to bear the penalty they do not claim to know any more than they know how it was possible for him to be made man. But that he bore it is the certainty on which all their hopes rest. C.S. Lewis in his series on the Chronicles of Narnia would call this the deeper magic. You know about the deep magic, but let me tell you about the deeper magic. That if an innocent being willing offered his own life in place of a traitor's, the deeper magic would reverse death itself and restore them to life. The second thing that the blood of Jesus does with our guilt is that we move from dead works to loving service. So one translation of Hebrews 9 verse 14 says, How much more will then the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from what? From dead works to serve the living God. If you do good works so that God will reward you, is that loving God or is that loving you? We serve God not to be accepted, but because we have been accepted. John Newton was changed from a man who was an advocate for the slave trade to a man actively working towards abolishing it. He penned the words in 1772, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Newton's literary work against the slave trade encouraged abolitionist William Wilberforce to continue his legal fight against slavery in England. We move from these dead works to loving service. 
Our last stop to bring it back to full circle is where Emily read to us just a moment ago. Hebrews 9, verse 27. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Here's the third thing that the blood of Jesus does with our guilt is that we move from fear to faithful anticipation. Arthur Stace was an Australian soldier in Sydney, Australia. He was known as a, an alcoholic. He was also known as a criminal. Nobody in, in his community paid him much attention because they just had already placed these labels on him. That was until August 6, 1930, when he heard a sermon message about Jesus and it changed his life. He converted to Christianity and he, he never was the same after that. And so he, not too long after that, heard a sermon by a man named John Ridley who said, eternity, eternity, I wish that I could sound or shout that word to everyone in the streets of Sydney. You've got to meet it. Where will you spend eternity? So almost every morning for the next 35 years, Arthur Stace would get up at four o'clock in the morning and he would walk around the streets of Sydney, Australia, writing the word eternity in chalk. It kind of got to a point where workers would arrive in the city and they would see the word freshly written, but they would have no idea who wrote it or where the writer came from. And so the Sydney City Council brought him to the attention of the police because they had rules about defacing pavement so much that he narrowly avoided arrest about 24 times. And each time he was caught, he responded with, but I had permission from a higher source. It's estimated that he wrote the word eternity over half a million times in 35 years. How will the blood of Christ make a difference in the lives that we touch this week? Because of Jesus' blood given for you, you can more fully move from fear to faithful anticipation. Let's pray this morning. Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're grateful for its sharpness, sharper than a double-edged sword. We pray that you will continue to allow your word to penetrate our hearts, to, to read us, and that in so doing, we will turn our gaze, we will fix our attention, we will fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. God, I, I pray today that we will be reminded of what the blood of Jesus means to our own guilty conscience and to the guilty conscience of those around us. And I'm not claiming that we're going to fix all, all the problems that are, are going on in, in our lives and in the world today. But I, I pray that we will stay steadfast. I pray that we will endure faithfully and I pray that we will look toward with eager 
expectation, that second coming where you will bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Father, we thank you for this in Jesus' good name. Amen.